They say time is the fire in which we burn. Right now, Captain, my time is running out. We leave so many things unfinished in our lives. I know you understand. Psycho Battle, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. Computer, remove the plank. That's retract the plank, not remove the plank. Oh, I always get that wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, it's okay. I love telling you you're wrong. <laughs> you do. You don't get to do it very often, but I guess... I guess it has to happen at some point. <laughs> our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. Elizabeth, I don't know if you noticed, but we're in the same room today. I know. How'd that happen? That's so I, weird. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird thing that happened. Um, Trekno babblers, that's what we're calling our, sure. our listeners. All Let's of do them that now. now. Yes. Um, uh, we, Elizabeth and I live on opposite ends of the country most of the time. But occasionally for work, uh, I am in her neck of the woods. And so we decided that whenever we're actually physically together, we're going to do a special episode. And so this is our first movie night. Yay! <laughs> I'm so excited. I know. Uh, there are 13 Trek movies currently, um, which is 13 episodes at some point. But there's also, there, you know, there's three little kind of TV movies inside Voyager. And then there's one, at least one in DS9, depending look at it. So there's plenty of... Uh, opportunities to do these kinds of things yeah i'm so. excited uh do, we should we get popcorn oh do we have popcorn can we have popcorn we'll have popcorn in the next one okay okay okay, okay. <laughs> we'll sell over tea this time yeah so we're going to begin our movie night series uh by talking about the most uh middle <laughs> of all star trek movies which is star trek seven generations and i want to talk to you about why that is but first let's do our recap okay in the 23rd century, retired Captain Kirk, along with Spock and McCoy, just kidding, Scotty and Chekhov, are greeted by Federation reporters for the historic launch of the Enterprise B, captained by John Harriman. Despite being at Earth's proverbial doorstep, they receive a distress call from a pair of vessels carrying Alorian refugees from their home, now lost to the Borg, and for which they are the only ship in range to help. Kirk makes an effort not to overstep, but Harriman makes it clear that he's out of his depth, and so the Enterprise warps away to rescue the ships. In the end, Kirk chooses to sacrifice himself to the spatial anomaly in order to save the Enterprise and 47 of the surviving refugees. Amongst those survivors are a despondent Malcolm McDowell, whom we later learn is called Sauron, no, not the one from Mordor, this one's a scientist, as well as a familiar face, Guinan, in one of her signature hats. We transition to the 24th century, where Worf is promoted on a holographic recreation of the 18th century Enterprise. Data makes a faux pas in an attempt at humor, but Picard receives devastating news that his brother, sister-in-law, and young nephew, Rene, have all been burned to death in an accidental fire. Distress calls do not wait for grief, however, as a research outpost calls the Enterprise D to action with news of an attack. Picard delegates the investigation to Riker, whose team discovers several dead Romulans and Dr. Soran amongst the rebel. Geordi obliges to install Data's emotion chip, which has been in his possession for about a year. 
leading to antics with emotions while Picard shares his horrible news with Deanna. After a good cry with his photo album, he meets by request with Sauron, who demands access to his research. Picard is dismissive at first, but agrees to do what he can when Sauron makes a cryptic remark about time and fire. Sauron's presence does not escape Ganon's notice, whose tending bar as usual. After determining that the Romulans were looking for a compound called Trilithium, which is exactly what Sauron was developing, Data and Geordi return to the outpost, where Sauron takes Geordi captive. Data has become paralyzed by his new emotions, which he cannot deactivate, nor can he remove the chip. The captive Geordi and Sauron are beamed to a Klingon bird of prey, captained by Lursa and Bator, who are still looking for a way to win back control of the Empire. Before the kidnapping, Sauron launched his trilithium from the outpost to the system star, which caused it to undergo nuclear fission and collapse, destroying the whole system before the Enterprise warps away. Crusher identifies Sauron from the 23rd century records, and so Picard questions Guinan about his motivations, where he learns about the Nexus, a spatial anomaly that destroys ships, but not planets, moves as quick through space as the plot requires, and for sapient beings, caught in it, creates realistic fantasies of pure joy. The energy ribbon that destroyed that ship was not just some random phenomena traveling through the universe. It's a doorway to another place that we call the Nexus. And it's a place I've tried very, very hard to forget. It was like being inside Joy. As if Joy was something tangible and you could wrap yourself up in it like a blanket. And never in my entire life have I ever been as content. She may have learned to let go of the Nexus, but Sauron has not, and will do anything to get back. Picard and Data deduce Sauron's next target in Stellar Cryptography, where they discuss the implications of emotions and how to deal with them. They realize that Sauron is blowing up stars in order to use the shifts in gravity to push the Nexus into the path of a planet where he can enter it again. He will have to blow up one more star, though, and this time it will kill hundreds of thousands of pre-warp inhabitants of a nearby planet. The Enterprise arrives at Viridian 3, the system in question, where they learn from the Klingons that Sauron has already beamed down. Picard offers to exchange himself for Geordi, but demands to be sent to Sauron first. Picard finds a force field in his way on the planet, which he attempts to talk Sauron down. Meanwhile, Geordi is returned to duty after passing a physical, but his visor has been compromised by Sauron and it feeds data to the bird of prey, meaning eventually the Klingons are able to blast a torpedo right through the Enterprise's shields. Thanks to some technobabble, Worf is able to force the Klingons to cloak and destroy their ship, but the Enterprise is too badly damaged to survive. The saucer is separated after the crew is shunted into it, and Deanna crash lands the saucer on the planet. Picard is unsuccessful, and Sauron destroys the star. He and Sauron are swept up into the diverted nexus before the planet is destroyed. Picard awakens in a very real-seeming vision of Christmas in an Edwardian or Victorian English or probably French manner, where he has a wife, children, and a not-burned-to-death nephew. He's momentarily delighted by the experience, but an exploding star within an ornament reminds him of his duty. An echo of Guinan is still in the Nexus with him, who explains that Kirk is also still in the Nexus, wherein time has no meaning, apparently, so Kirk has just arrived as well. Picard resolves to recruit Kirk to help him defeat Sauron. After some time burning eggs, riding horses, and reliving proposals in rural Idaho, Kirk agrees, and the two captains return to Viridian Three. Faced with two adversaries, Sauron is eventually defeated and exploded. But Kirk finally does die in the line of duty. Picard buries him amongst the rocks before being recovered by his crew who have survived the crash. 
The Enterprise D, however, is unsalvageable, and so the film ends with the expectation of the next generation of the Federation flagship. Elliot, is it okay if I don't love the Star Trek movies as much as I like the Star Trek show? Um, it is not only okay, it is a sign of your great intellect and <sighs> emotional Phew. depth. Like, I, I, it's an okay movie, but like, I, I feel like it's just a lot of fan service, you know? It's like, if I hadn't watched Star Trek, if I didn't know all of these people already, I wouldn't have gotten anything out of watching this. Yeah, in terms of how the Trek films fit into the Star Trek thing, franchise, it's, it's, um, it's a little difficult. So... My favorite movie, I think I mentioned before, is the very first one, the motion picture, which most people kind of hate and they find boring. But okay. to me, if you're going to make a film that is a distillation of the show, that's the film. All of the rest of them, to one degree or another, are about, well, it's a sci-fi movie, has to have action, has to have excitement and adventure, and we'll do it within the Star Trek universe. But the priority for the studio, because they have to make lots of money on these things, is to make that first. And this movie in, is the most middle, <laughs> the most okay of all the movies, in my opinion. It's not unpleasant to watch. Mm -hmm. It's entertaining enough, but boy, is it disappointing. <laughs> yeah, like, they could have done so much more with, like, the idea of the Nexus and just, like, what was happening with the characters. It felt really just, like, shoot yeah. in a little bit. Yeah, and what you say about fan service is really apt because, so this, this movie came out months after The Next Generation finished airing. Oh, okay. So at the time, this is 1995, um, and The Next Generation had just finished airing. DS9 was in its third season. Voyager was about to premiere. Um, and they had just started doing these Next Generation films after the six original series films. So in terms of Star Trek being in the world and in media, it was like a very exciting time. It was They were doing three shows and movies and conventions and it was just like until today basically like now that there's all these series on the airs on the air um it's never been so like hyped up so yeah. that urge to like throw everything in the Jura sisters and and the emotion ship and the original series crew and we're gonna see the enterprise b and we're gonna do all this cool stuff and it's like yeah it is cool <laughs> but it's like what is this about? Absolutely. It's like you're just throwing the kitchen sink at everything without thinking, and like, what is what cookie are you actually making right now? <laughs> right. It's an everything cookie. It's an everything cookie. <laughs> uh. Yeah. And so, for me, like, the structure of the movie doesn't... It's very weird. Like, the Enterprise crashes at about 80 minutes in mm -hmm. the movie, and the movie is an hour and 50 minutes long. So there's this big climactic moment where, like, the Enterprise D that we watched for seven years is essentially destroyed. Yeah. And then there's still a half hour of movie to go. It, yeah, the structure of it's really weird. And especially when the planet is destroyed. Like, that's such a monumental moment that is just like, boop. And, like, they don't, they don't like, give you any time to really process that. No. That, like, everyone that you care about just died. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's like, um, there's, in addition to, I mean, we're going to talk about the Nexus, I think, in terms of what it could have meant. But they, there's all of this buildup that doesn't take us anywhere. So I really like the Nexus as a concept, but I don't love the way it kind of showed up in the story. Like there's... Flying through space. Flying through space. Well, the, the idea that there is a point in the universe at which all points converge, like has a very circular, like philosophy to it in a way that I really like. The, like I think that there, 
there is this idea that, you know, when the big, big Bang happened, everything was compressed into a single point in time and in space. And from that explosion, everything was created. And I like the idea that somehow you can get back to that singular point where everything is connected. But the way this movie does it, it's like it's a ribbon that moves through space that you can only enter it at a very specific point in space-time, but it can dump you out anywhere. Oh my god. Even if it's not there currently. I know, I know, I know. Like, (laughs) that doesn't make any sense. Well, and it's like, uh, this is a complaint that's been lodged in this movie before, but it's worth repeating. It's like, so Picard, Guinan, Echo Guinan, whatever that is, tells Picard, You can go anywhere, anytime. All right, I know exactly where I want to go. To the mountaintop on Viridian 3, just before Solon destroyed the star. I have to stop him. Not to go further back and, like, stop Soren from ever going to the station and, like, just arrest him. Mm. Or go back and, I don't know, stop the Borg from assimilating the Federation. Or, like, you can go anywhere and your choice is, I'm going to go to the planet with one other guy. That's my solution to this problem. It's like, wow. Yeah, like, I just I just need to go back, like, a couple minutes, you know, and just pre- just prevent this one thing from happening versus all the dominoes that led up to that moment. Yeah, and there have been so many episodes of Star Trek where they deal with, like, the consequences of the temporal prime directive, yeah. and they're, like, actually wrestling with, well, what should I do? It's like, there's a lot of really good Star Trek episodes dealing with that moral conundrum. That and here Picard's good. just like, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, That's a really good episode. <laughs> um, but Picard doesn't even think about it or talk about it it's just like oh i need to go here and there's no discussion it's like this movie is two hours long and they waste so much time doing stupid shit with data life forms you tiny little life forms (laughs) which we'll get to um that they don't dwell on it and it's just like well the plot needs us to go here so here we go yeah No, I totally agree with you. And then there's also this idea that these fantasy worlds are created for the people who end up in the Nexus, but everything in that world except for them is fake. Like, that seems strange to me. Partially because, like, Kirk and Picard, they are obviously quote-unquote real, and they can talk to each other. And if the Nexus is the point where all of time and space converges... Why can't that mean that all possibilities exist within this place? And if that is possible, the people in there are technically possible. Maybe right. maybe it's like another universe or a parallel universe that somehow like they all end up here. But like that was just a weird plot point to me. You know, like why why wasn't Antonia real? Why wasn't Picard's family real? Um, but I, I I see how they used that unrealness as a plot point because that's what actually made Kirk realize he couldn't stay there because right. he wouldn't actually be having real relationships with anybody. He would be basically like talking to himself for the rest of eternity. And that, that wasn't okay with him. The fact that it didn't actually mean anything or involve real people meant like that wasn't worth it for him. It had to actually mean something and be something real that other people experienced to somebody else. And we're going to get back to Kirk for sure. Um, but the, Potential. What you're describing is what the Nexus could have been. Well, they call it the Nexus, yeah. which is, I think, is what inspires what you were talking about in yeah. this convergence. But they don't. None of that's in the movie. The Nexus is just this thing that gives you joygasms. Yet yeah, your formulation of what the Nexus should have been, <laughs> based on what it's called, this convergence, is so much more thought out than I think 
went into the actual script. Absolutely, that's why I'm annoyed by it. That's <laughs> right. Like most things. And it's just, they call it the Nexus because it sounds like sci-fi, I guess. I don't know. Um, but it, why then was it, the way Guinan describes it in the scene where she and Picard are talking and he's getting the backstory about uh, Sauron. Um, she describes it as like being inside of joy. Okay. So it's supposed to be set up as this incredible temptation, mm -hmm. I guess, is the angle they're going for, where it's like only the strongest will could possibly say no. Like she and the rest of the Elorian refugees were ripped away yeah. in the rescue attempt, and it like apparently devastated them. No, I have to go. I have to go I need back. To stay right here. No, okay. you don't understand. Let me go back. Let me go back. Let me go Please back! Let me go back! So why, after, you know, Picard's in there for like two minutes having Christmas, and then he's like, okay, I'm, I'm good to go. Mm -hmm. And then he talks to Kirk for like two minutes, and they ride around on horses, and then he's good to go. It's like, wow. Yeah, oh, those two people were able to resist this overwhelming temptation. Yeah, yeah. which is fine. They're the heroes, but but why? I don't. There's nothing on screen to explain. You know, Picard has saved the day, Kirk has saved the day a thousand times. Mm -hmm. In, you know, over the course of the, the series. Yeah. Like, why? I don't know. Well, when when Picard was at the Christmas scene and then saw the exploding ornament lights, yeah. what I thought he was experiencing when he looked at that was the memory of the star exploding and the millions of people who had died mm -hmm. for him to be there. And, like, mm. that's something I think that would have been really hard for him to reconcile himself with, regardless of the joy that he felt. Like, knowing that millions of people had to die so that he could have this... I don't think Picard could have done that in any universe. I hear you. No, no. Ethically, of course. Yeah. Yeah, but there's like an obvious thing. It's just in terms of like the character beats. Yeah. He had, you know, Patrick Stewart's an incredible actor. And the scene where he recounts to Deanna about the, this horrible, horrible. I mean, not only are they dead, they died in this incredibly devastating way. Burned to death in a about all the experiences that Renee's not going to have, about going to the academy, reading books and listening to music, falling in love, building a life. Well, it's not going to happen now. That scene is so moving and just the way, because of the way it's performed, and then to suddenly have it not have happened it's like, I get that Picard is the kind of character who would put the needs of others ahead of his own, of course, and so would Kirk, but I don't see the struggle. Yeah. I don't sense it at all. It's like, no, we got dated doing Mr. Tricorder. That's more important. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Tricorder. <laughs> no, I... I, I agree with you. Like, it feels like they kind of sped through the emotional, psychological processing of just in order to finish the movie and move on to the next thing. Yeah. Like, it didn't really have depth or teeth or something that made me think, yeah, I can, I also went on that emotional journey with you. It just kind of jumped. Yeah, and it's like, it's so confusing because, so this movie is written by ben, Brandon Braga and Ronald D. Moore. And Ronald D. Moore, of course, he, he's known for Star Trek, but he's more known for uh, the new uh, BSG, Battlestar Galactica oh, series, right? I love that one. Which we 
maybe we'll talk about that someday. But yeah. um, that show's known for like incredible character writing yeah. and very deep, hard conversations. And then Braga, not known so much for that, but he's able to take really goofy sci-fi concepts like projections, for example, mm-hmm. right? Where the Doctor in Voyager um, is like having this crazy, uh, confusing experience of a, a non-reality, right? Yeah. And he's very good at taking a weird sci-fi thing and turning it into something really compelling. So you've got these two writers with these strengths that seem to lend themselves perfectly to these concepts, and yet they don't do anything with it. I know. It's really disappointing. It's just like, oh, that was entertaining, but not thoughtful. Leaving aside the sort of structural issues, it is worth examining, um, I think, the, 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 the character stuff. So... You have not yet seen much of the original series. Yeah. And have you, have you seen any of the original series films? No, not yet. Okay. Yeah. So then before I tell you <laughs> um, what I think about the way Kirk is handled, you coming into it without having seen the other things, what, what do you think about Kirk's journey in this movie? Well, I see Kirk really wrestling with a major life transition that I think if we're all lucky enough to become um, elders, but that is a very different role in society. You know, we're not as quote unquote useful and like that's a whole capitalism rant that I'm just going to like sidestep right now, yeah. but it's there. Um, but you know, he remembers being captain of the enterprise and just how satisfying that was to him. And it's really hard for him not to be in that position of feeling like useful anymore and not being able to make a difference like that was ultimately what brought him back like right. through the movie like his arc of it, I wanted to make a difference you know and being able to make a difference was the most meaningful thing about my life like the fact that I was there and that I did something changed the outcome what's what's struck what's what I struggle with about that is um even within the confines of this movie the first thing that we see the first scene that he's in at the end of it um he sacrifices himself or intends to, right, um, for the uh, for for people, right, for the the refugees in the Enterprise B. Is that what happens? Like, I thought he was just trying to fix the deflector he was. thing, but like, didn't I? Don't think he expected to be like I thrown out into space. I see. Okay, no, that's that's a fair point. T- to me, the way I, I see what you mean, it, like there is a distinction between choosing to well, but that he didn't really plan on necessarily dying. Right when he went back with Picard, either that's fair. It wasn't like he was thinking, "I'm going to die," mm-hmm. or threw himself in front of a bullet or something, right? But Ma- he he does make that very conscious decision. Like he realizes the captain, the actual captain of the Enterprise, should not should not go down and do this. Like he should. Wait. Your place is on the bridge of your ship. I'll take care of it. So he right. does kind of recalibrate, like, wait, what is my place? What is my role in this moment? You know, and, like, kind of, you know, I think rises to the occasion in that way. Like, he, he sees his personal desires and, like, egoic wants, and he realizes that there is something ultimately better for the collective. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. And that's, so to me, what's a little limpid about that journey, even within the movie, is that he went from going through that in the opening scene to then being convinced to do it again. Right. It's like, wow. I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, what did you learn to save the day? That's always been Kirk. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and 
to add further context in terms of where this fits in with the other movies without spoiling too much, um, it is about aging. The, the kind of arc of the first six films um, literally are dealing, you know, with a cast who's, they're all middle-aged to elderly by the end of the, of the, of the movies. And um, it is, Kirk especially is dealing with the idea of like aging out of the role of captain, mm -hmm. which he's so iconically known for in and out of universe. This is not about age. And you know it. It's about you flying a goddamn computer console when you want to be out there hopping galaxies. Spare me your notions of poetry, please. We all have our assigned duties. Paul, don't mince words, Bones. What do you really think? Get back your command. Get it back before you turn into part of this collection. Before you really do grow old. And he comes to a resolution in the previous movie, finally, of like accepting himself and where his place is. Mm. Is it possible that we too, you and I, have grown so old and so inflexible that we have outlived our usefulness? Spock, you wanna know something? Everybody's youthful. I find that remark insulting. And then we get to this movie, and it's like, he's gone back to not accepting it. I gave this clock to Bones. I was like you once. So worried about duty and obligation, I couldn't see past my own uniform. And what did it get me? An empty house. Not this time. And then on top of that, they kill him unceremoniously twice. And it's like, no, no, Kirk should, you know, the death of Kirk, that's a profoundly, again, a really, like, potentially great thing to do. Like, the death of a major character in this universe. Yeah, end of an era. End of an era. Yeah. Exactly. Passing the torch. I get that's, like, in the DNA of the movie. You know, he's with Chekhov and, uh, and Scotty, kind of, and all these people that he doesn't know <laughs> on the Enterprise B. And then he's with Picard, who he also, also doesn't know. And no one sees, no one's there to observe him die. Yeah. It's, it's as if he really did die, you know, the 75 years ago. Like, no one will ever really know he was on Viridian 3. To have such an epic career and character arc and life just kind of, like, sputter out at the end like that. Like, it's hard, you know. And then, well, the film plays up his, like, legendary status. Yeah. It's like, in the opening scene, there's all the press crew there, and everyone's so nervous, and, like... The, the new captain of the Enterprise B is ready to hand over the ship to him, which, whatever. But it's like, they play it up as like, Kirk is so great. If he's going to die quietly, I need to see him go through a journey that's not just making eggs and riding a horse. Mm. You know? Yeah. If, like, I, I, I get the idea that, like, Kirk maybe needs to learn to die quietly and, like, die as a human as instead of a legend. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a cool concept. I, it's sort of there, but yeah. you don't, he doesn't get there in the film. Yeah, he doesn't get there. journey that Picard goes on feels a little contrived and perfunctory. Like, it's yeah. like, we're gonna take this character that we have developed over six seasons. Six or seven? Seven. Seven. Even longer! <laughs> 
Um, and like we know him inside and out and we have seen all these different sides of him and here is a one-dimensional story that involves him that doesn't really explore all the things that have been built up about that character until now. I think Picard, I agree with you, but I do think Picard is handled a little bit better than Kirk. Yeah. I think it's a little more connected to his backstory in that so he mentions to Deanna, you know, he's like, he, he grew up hearing from his father about all the Picards of the past. Yeah. Being a small child, I can remember being told about the family line. The Picard who fought at Trafalgar. The Picard who won the Nobel Prize for chemistry. The Picards who settled the first Martian colonies. And of course, they have their vineyard that's named after them. Mm. Um, and so there's this legacy and the burden of a legacy and he talks about how having Rene, having his nephew um, in his life, f freed him up to feel like he didn't have to carry yeah. that on. And we saw, we talked about the inner light a couple weeks ago and how... I always believed that I didn't need children to complete my life. Now I couldn't imagine life without them. So he got the personal piece of that out in terms of having the experience, but in terms of the legacy... Rene provided that for him so he didn't feel burdened and he could go and be the captain. Yeah, and he didn't have to think about, like, oh, my family line dies with me and all all this history that we have been so proud of, like, uh, it stops here. Yeah. You know, it stops with me. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, and, and so that's, for me, that's a really good and sort of nuanced starting place. What I don't get, and, and frankly, it would be different just knowing the movies that come later, um, if it went somewhere later, like they left it dangling to say, what's the idea of Picard's legacy going to be? There's kind of something in Nemesis about it, but it's such a bad movie. Um, in this movie, at least, there's... that Again, so he goes through this whole experience. He has this tragedy, experiences the Nexus, defeats Sauron, ship is gone, and I guess he picks up his photo album and, and leaves away. That's it. Mm. I, I don't. I just don't know what that means. Yeah, it's like the way he's able to reconcile everything that happens by the end of the film. You know, like the death of his family, the the destruction of his starship. Like that. That's a lot of heavy loss. And at the end, he's like, "I've come to a you know like conclusion that makes everything okay." It's a really big jump for Picard to have gone through the death of his family, the destruction of the Enterprise, um, the death of Captain Kirk, like. And, and then at the end to suddenly to suddenly be okay with all of it yeah. when he was struggling with so much of that throughout the entire movie especially the death of his family and I like that sentiment that he reaches at the end like taken out of context I, I think I do agree with it what we leave behind is not as important as how we've lived after all number one we're only mortal and Maybe that's just like a personal comfort because so many of us are lost to, um, because so many of us are lost to obscurity, you mm. know, in hundreds of years. Like think about like, we don't, I don't even know my family history, their names, you know, much like past a hundred years in my own family. And, and there's something, there is something sad about that, but I also think like the only time we have is now and like, right. how can we... How can we make a difference for the in, during the time that we have, and that is still meaningful, even if, even if it's not remembered like hundreds of years from now. So, in other words, you're taking out of it that Picard essentially lets go, like so he, 
because of Renee existing, he felt like he had a, an excuse, let's say, mm-hmm. not to dwell on this legacy that he felt was important yeah. with his family. And instead, he's learned to simply let go of that um, that need or that, that pressure. It's okay that I, that there won't be more cards in that way. It's like, I'm going to be the best captain and person I can be now. Mm-hmm. Maybe. You know, like, I think... Again, it's really hard with this movie. It jumps so fast, and I don't really think it earns that kind of uh, station. Right. You know, it's like, this is where I've arrived. How did you get there? The writers <laughs> told you to do it? Oh, great reason. Great reason. From Picard's side of it, the conversation that, that they have in solar cartography. First of all, cool set. Yeah. New set, right? Yeah. For, for the movie. Like, I'm glad that they put some money into that because it looks really nice even um 25 years later um and there's this idea between the two of them about what to do with feelings so data is now he can't take the emotion chip out and the chip is fused to his neural net yeah and they don't quite clarify whether it actually is malfunctioning or it's just data has feelings and doesn't know what to do with that now yeah Again, going to come back to data, but from Picard's side of things, the sentiment that he expresses—I'm curious psychologically how this sounds to you, whether this is good advice or not—which is essentially like uh, humans have to learn to not to, to like just kind of push them away so that you can function. Oh, I don't think that's what Picard is saying at all. Okay, then help me out. Yeah, yeah. No, I think Data is saying, like, I don't want to have these feelings. I don't want to, like, shut me off so I don't have to feel these things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have that sentiment at some point throughout their life. Like, I don't want to feel sad. I don't want to feel grief. I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to feel what I'm feeling right now. And they spend a lot of energy just fighting that reality that they feel that way. Simply... Do not have the ability to control these emotions. Data, I, I have nothing but sympathy for what you are feeling. But right now, I need you to... Sir, I no longer want these emotions. Deactivating me is the only viable solution. Part of having feelings is learning to integrate them into your life, Data. Learning to live with them. No matter Sir, what the circumstances, you will not be deactivated. You're an officer on board this ship, and I require you to perform your duty. So what I think Picard is saying is, like, you have to accept the emotions that you have. The humans don't get to live without emotion. But how do you how do you live your life integrating those emotions into your life? You know, Picard, on the one hand, like, he is full of grief, and I'm sure would love not to have to perform his duties right now, and just be sad you know mm-hmm. maybe part of him wants to do that part of him wants to perform his duties and ignore how he's feeling so he's like there's those opposite tensions happening at the same time right. which that i think is much more realistic but what i think he says to data is you have to learn how to live with these emotions you can't shut them off and while i don't think i don't think he's telling data to ignore the way he's feeling though i can see how that might be a little implied like ignore your feelings and just do your job but ultimately, like, we have to learn how to live with these emotions and incorporate them into our lives. Like, how can it be okay to feel sad and grief? And if you're not fighting that feeling, if you're not spending so much energy trying to repress it or ignore it, and you just let it be there, mm. and you just let yourself feel it, 
and you do what you need to do, you know, trying to be just soft around both those sides of like, I have to live my life, I have certain responsibilities that I have to fulfill, and I also need to take some time to like cry in the ready room. You know, like how, how do you do both without completely shirking one or the other? That is actually, that helps me a lot with this movie, what you just said, because I, I didn't think of it that way, but considering that, being a little generous, but considering that, um, applying that conception of, of feelings and how we, how we deal with them to the other characters in this film, um, to Kirk, where he is, the, the, his tension of opposites is wanting to be done yeah. with saving the day, having to be that guy all the time, and feeling like his only the only place that he belongs is in the captain's chair. You know, that's yeah. what he says. It's like, don't let them promote you. Don't let them transfer you. Don't let them do anything that takes you off the bridge of that ship, because while you're there, you can make a difference. And he struggles with that tension because his, so his fantasy, you would think, would be being back on the Enterprise yeah. and being in command again. And instead it's being in Idaho um, with this woman that we've never heard of. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, again, that tension. And then with Sauron, I keep saying Sauron like he's actually the guy from Lord of the Rings, but it's Sauron, right? Uh, uh, with with Soren, it's um, he he is not in any way reconciling. He's he's like completely driven by, unlike Guinan, completely driven by this singular emotional objective. Yeah. I mean, we don't ever get to see what his nexus experience is, yeah. which is I, again I think a mistake for this movie in mm. terms of the construction of it. But we can imagine, you know, the Alorians were all on their way. Uh, being shipped to the refugees, right? They're, they're, uh, the planet was destroyed by the Borg. Yeah. So the grief, you can imagine, like his his family, his whole family was killed or assimilated. And uh, you, you can imagine what he's going through of like this incredible anger and this sorrow. And he's got this mind that is so sort of like clever and devious. And so he is singularly focused on this one drive Ignoring the fact that, I don't know, he doesn't seem like the kind of person who would wantonly just destroy a whole civilization. Yeah. But for him, it's like, nothing else matters. Mm -hmm. This is where I'm focused. Right here. It's a little bit like addiction. Like, yeah. all you can think about is getting, is meeting your own needs, and n nothing else matters. Which would make Guinan kind of like a person in recovery. Maybe. Right? Yeah. And dealing with that. Yeah, well... I think in a way Sauron and Kirk actually are, are dealing with versions of the same problem um, in which, you know, Sauron says he, you know, there was a time when he wouldn't hurt a fly and then the Borg came and just everything changed for him. And there was something about that wound that just really altered his sense of what he wanted and his morality and what he thought was fair. You know, in a way he was like, I had a great life and it was all taken away from me. And here's this opportunity for me to get something like that back, mm -hmm. something that makes me feel good. And, you know, screw everything. I want to have what I want. Like, Kirk in The Nexus is kind of saying the same thing. Right. It's like, I have paid my debt to the galaxy. The galaxy thinks I'm dead. This is for me. You know, it's, it's like, it's, they're, they're similar in mm -hmm. that way. They're mm -hmm. trying to think about, like, what, what the universe owes me something. 
I don't know. I felt that way sometimes. Yeah, I have too. Right? Hey, Trekno Babblers. We hope you're enjoying the show. We wanted to take a moment to invite you to follow us on social media. Yeah, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at TreknoPsychopod. You can also find us on Facebook at TreknoBabble Psychobabble Podcast. And if you have any questions or comments or ideas that you would love uh, for us to cover in our podcast, you can email us at TreknoPsychopod at gmail.com. And we would love for you to also follow us on YouTube at TreknoPsychopod where you can enjoy our podcasts with all of the stunning visuals that are included. And if you would like to support us on Patreon at Technobabble Psychobabble Podcast, we would appreciate any support you can offer. Enjoy the show. Well, what, doctor? <laughs> oh, I'm so far from that. I'm so far from that. Counselor. Um, also far. <laughs> uh, person who knows more about this than me. Um, what, what are we supposed to do with that? feeling of cosmic um injustice and injustice yeah Yeah. i don't know you know um i think a lot of people think therapists are supposed to give advice and answers and Mm. we're very much told you're not supposed to give advice (laughs) and answers (laughs) um and but you can help people figure out what their answer is and there's like you're an expert on the process of inquiry and discovery but you, but that's that's a process. That's not the content. That's not the answer. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. But to actually answer your question, like, what do you do with with this feeling of like the universe owes me something and and f everybody who's in my way for that? You know, like your pain doesn't matter as much as as what I want. You know, I don't know. You're starting to get in like sociopathic tendencies when that happens because. Most humanoids, most humans, we are biologically and and psychologically wired for social connection. And you can say that a lot of morality is based on the idea that we need other people. And so we have to protect those connections. But when, Mm -hmm. but if you take away that, like, if you take away someone's ability to care about that, like that's when we get psychopaths and sociopaths, which I think in a bit, that's what Sauron is. Mm-hmm. And that's above my, that's above my skill <laughs> set right now. But it, it's, it's a scary concept to have such a basic premise of do not hurt other people. Like, how do you, how would you talk to somebody who doesn't think that's true? Um, well, gosh, um, that's, yeah. If we're dealing with someone who literally lacks empathy, yeah. right? That's I obviously what you say is, is true. That's that's a whole other sort of medical condition that is beyond therapy in the traditional sense. I mean, right? there are some therapists who can deal with it. Sure. I'm just I'm not there yet. I, I know I totally hear you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think most of us would not certainly pull the trigger on another person, let alone a whole society, mm-hmm. to get something that makes us feel good. Mm-hmm. I think most of us have that moral barrier in place. There's a difference between pulling a trigger and jumping into the pool and letting the thing happen off screen, essentially. Mm, yeah. In terms of how we confront that ethical question. You know, Soren didn't launch a rocket at the planet and blow a bunch of people up. 
he moved this spatial anomaly or and and the sun and and it was like a consequence of a thing two or three steps removed from what he was doing yeah and he wasn't there to see the destruction and he didn't see it happen that i bet if someone you know if a counselor had been able to sit down with him and make him really think about the deaths of all those people what you're about to do Saren, is no different from when the borg destroyed your world they killed millions too including your wife children nice try you know there was a time when i wouldn't hurt a fly then the borg came and they showed me that if there is one constant in this whole universe it's death afterwards i began to realize it didn't really matter we're all going to die sometime just a question of how and when you will too captain Aren't you beginning to feel time gaining on you? It's like a predator. It's stalking you. Time is going to hunt you down and make the kill. It's our mortality that defines us, Sorin. It's part of the truth of our existence. What if I told you I found a new truth? That's hard. It's, it, there's a lot of pain and suffering engrossed in a person who is willing to kill an entire planet so that he can get something mm -hmm. yeah but it's still it's 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 faceless it's right it's nameless yeah. we don't we don't ever i mean that's another mistake for this movie in my opinion is we don't have any sense of who this just is random aliens which i guess on an ethical level i understand that we want to see our heroes being like it doesn't matter that we have no idea who these people are it's still based their lives still matter yes uh, dramatically, it's a little flat. <laughs> well, like you also don't see the people of the Enterprise like die in that either. You just see them as like these tiny specks on the saucer, and then yeah. they're gone. Yeah, like, I don't. Was... I don't think anyone died. Well, because part <laughs> went back in time. Oh, right, 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 right. But yeah. I mean, in the crash, even right. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, I, I know, know what you mean. Yeah, but yeah. well, that's the thing is like, <laughs> of all the places, it's like okay, yeah, this ship is destroyed. But I think literally everyone except for that stupid teddy bear <laughs> made it out alive, right? And it's like, yeah. well, that's kind of flaccid in a movie that's supposed to be dealing with these big concepts it's like no one died there's no consequences at all okay there is one part of soren's motivation that i i can kind of empathize with and understand because i am not a sociopath as far um, as you know as far as i know <laughs> um but there is this idea that there's such a thing as like an the oceanic consciousness where everything is one and I kind of see how that can relate to the Nexus. Like, all points in time have just converged into this one place where everything and anything is possible, mm -hmm. you know. And there's there's a sense of wholeness and joy and safety in, in that kind of space that, honestly, as soon as you're born, you get ripped away from. You know, like, b birth in and of itself is kind of a traumatic event. Sure, yeah. You know, but that's what... But it is that traumatic event that brings you forth into life and into the world, which is full of pain and suffering. Like, there's no life that doesn't have that. But I think, but there's this almost remembrance of this just pure bliss and oceanic consciousness that from from this time of before, before we entered this world with all its, like, pain and glory, that a lot of people still strive for and, like, try to connect back to. You know, like some some people will gravitate toward people of power because they think they can be protected by their 
energy and by their personality and by all those things around them. They can kind of be absorbed back into this, I'm going to become part of you in order to be safe. You know, there's okay. that feeling. And, and so I see Sauron, like, he touched that. He, he, he could have touched this sense of everything is fine and I am okay and everything is okay and nothing is wrong. And then he gets ripped away from that. And I, I can see him wanting to go back to that. Because I think everybody kind of wants to go back to that in a way. Like, yeah. But Guinan, on the other hand, like she accepts that she can't get back to that. And I think in a way, like during our human lives, we have to accept that there is pain and suffering. And there is that separation that from that kind of oceanic consciousness and loving wholeness that we know is there and that we came from it. But we, in order to have the life that we have now, we have to be separate from it. And we can't have one without the other. But Soren, and, and Guinan accepts that, right. but Soren is just like, nope, just I just want to dive right back into that. Well, yeah. Um, you've talked before about the concept of being pushed from behind. Um, it's the sort of underlying, I like this oceanic consciousness term. Um or, yeah, that we've talked about the numinous realm, which is theorized to be a place of where there is there is no division, in, individualistic division between consciousnesses. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of an mm -hmm. ur consciousness. Um, I love all of that. But what you're saying, I think, is in addition to that, so the, in this case, what's being pushed behind is the, is that desire to go back to that place, that before place, that happy place um pure joy and what but we're also being pulled from the front by the grief yeah right well especially like to think like he lost his entire family his entire civilization like he went through this incredibly traumatic event and then found this like pure joy mm -hmm. and then was ripped away from that again like that that's psychologically damaging to almost anybody yeah and what a yo-yo exactly it's yeah. like, ooh, like this yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, we also went through some emotional yo-yoing. We're going to talk about Data now. Because oh, of all Data. the things, you know, I get pissed off about the way they killed Kirk. I think the way they, ham they dealt with Picard was better, but still pretty flaccid. The Nexus is stupid. Sauron's not developed. <laughs> Um, we didn't even talk about just like the way they decide to defeat the the Klingons mm -hmm. is like, so they're, so they're like in the most advanced starship or whatever, at least the biggest, the flagship of the Federation against this dinky old Klingon, uh, bird of prey. And yeah, they, the Klingons play dirty and they, and they get to the shield. Um, and that's, they're the bad guys. And then the solution for our heroes is like... Defective plasma coils. Plasma coils. Is there any way we could use that to our advantage? The plasma coil is part of their cloaking device. Dinner. Would a defective plasma coil be susceptible to some sort of ionic pulse? Perhaps. Yes. Yes. If we sent a low-level ionic pulse, it might reset the coil and trigger the cloaking device. Excellent idea, sir. Lock on the plasma coil. No problem. Just shoot them. Like you're in this giant, just fucking shoot them. And they do all this nonsense, and it's just so contrived and stupid. And I hate it, and I'm done with that now. Data. <laughs> Did you get that off your chest? Yes. Okay. I feel a little bit better now. Okay. The thing about Data is 
Um, so let's talk about the emotion chip. Yeah. So the emotion chip was introduced to the show back in season four in an episode called Brothers. That's mm-hmm. when, do you remember that episode? Can you remind me? Yes. Uh, so the Enterprise is chugging along. There are these, there's this other medical emergency that they're going to like There's always resolve. a medical emergency. I know, but there's like this little kid who's like going to die if they don't get into a starbase. And then Data suddenly stops being himself and like there's a switch that turns him on. Enter code. One seven three four six seven three two one four seven six Charlie three two seven eight nine seven 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 six four three Tango seven three two Victor seven three one one seven eight 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 seven three two four seven six seven eight nine seven six four three seven six Lock Computer Initiate cascade sequence Accepting instructions from Commander Data en route Now He ends up stranding the Enterprise and locking everybody else out because he's being like there's a signal that gets activated that turns out comes from Dr. Soon. Oh, yeah, like a homing beacon? Yes, exactly. Okay. And everyone thought he was dead, but he wasn't. He was hiding on this planet and called Data back to him to give him the emotion chip. But Lore came back as well, his evil twin oh, brother, yeah, yeah. Um, who already has emotions, had him, had them from his inception. Lore is older mm-hmm. um, than Data. What's interesting to me about that whole thing and that setup, I don't mind the emotion chip in that story because... The implication, what Data, what Lore had told Data before was that Data was the first model. But they found him to be imperfect, and I was made to replace him. And therefore made a better android with Lore who had emotions. Okay. And was more nuanced, and he, they just couldn't deal with how nuanced and great he was. That's Lore's take of it. But it's actually the other way around. Mm-hmm. They, he made an, an android with emotions and decided this doesn't work. You're, you're, you're unstable. And so made data later without the emotions and decided that whatever journey data was going to go on was going to be better. <laughs> I am not less perfect than Lore. I am not less perfect than Lore. Enough! Both of you. What I love about that setup is that it plays with the idea of what emotions are. Mm-hmm. Right? Data was told you don't have emotions and believed it. And then there's this chip. And if you have the chip, then you'll have feelings. And it's like, okay. And, and his struggle throughout the show is about finding his humanity th- without those feelings, right? It's like, how do I, I'm going to emulate people. I'm going to find my own version. You know, it's kind of like a neurodivergency yeah. allegory a bit. And that's all really, really cool. But then, so the, so the chip to me always should have been a placebo, Right mm. in Descent, where he gets it back from Lore. Um, you remember that story yeah. with the board? I, I get the idea that he's being fed um, uh, like a charged feeling or like rage and like things that like th- the intensity of the emotion maybe is something that he's not used to, mm-hmm. um, and that's what screws him. But I think actually installing the chip in his head should have just been like it didn't actually change anything about his programming. He just convinced himself now I have emotions and now I can actually be here. Um, the fact that it actually is those feelings in this movie, it's confirmed. No, Data only has feelings when he has the chip in his brain. Ruins that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, it's just like, what does that have to do with the human condition? Other than, I guess, brain damage. If you're brain damaged and have are cut off from love and joy and fear. Yeah. Okay, but that's such a specific and not particularly useful metaphor. Yeah. Right? So, so are you saying in the show, the... Emotion chip was a placebo at some point, or that's how you wish it had been. I, that's how I wish it had ended up 
being. Yeah. And, and I think introducing the chip early on, it had that potential, and I think it worked in those stories. And then here, when they finally apply it, I think it fails. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it's like, one, it's annoying as hell. Data's behavior is annoying as hell. It does not add to this movie. Yeah. <laughs> journey that he went through seven years of struggling to find his humanity within the limitations of his being yeah it's just sort of ignored yeah for this piece of technology data's behavior is very annoying especially when he's just like laughing maniacally for like those first like couple minutes where he has the chip but but i also think like there's something childlike where you know he is he's experiencing these emotions for the first time and I, I think about in the battle when they do blow up the Klingon ship and mm -hmm. everyone else everyone else has a much more nuanced you know like this I'm relieved it's also sad that it came to this you know like you know like all the emotions we assume or they are feeling in that moment but data having gone through countless battles but never felt anything before kind of, I think, speaks for everyone in that moment on some level when he goes, yes! <clears throat> yeah, no, we all feel that, but no, no one says it. Similarly, when the ship starts to go down, and he goes, oh, shit. He has to say... No filter. Them. No filter. Yeah. And he has to say those things because this is the first time he's ever feeling them. You know? Mm-hmm. And, and so I thought that was a cool, like, just a cool... I don't know if it's a plot point in the story, but just a good tool that was used in those moments. You know, finally let data, letting data speak emotionally for what everyone is going through, but no one says it because it's not their first time or they've been told not to, but data just goes for it. Yeah. Um, I, I love how your glass is, is half full on that. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. No, I, yeah. I, I'm glad it, it, it worked for you on that level. Um, do you remember the episode Unification from TNG? It's not the Discovery about it. one. Uh, it's when where Spock comes back and they're on Romulus and uh, Picard and Data dress up as Romulans. Yeah. And okay. There's a conversation that Spock and Data have um, at one point in, I think, the second part. They, they talk about it. So, you know, Vulcans, right, their highest aspiration is to be completely purged of emotional. Uh, any any emotions having any control on them on them yeah. not to be purged of emotions per se but to have them have any control over their actions mm -hmm. um and so spock tells data you have an efficient intellect superior physical skills no emotional impediments there are vulcans who aspire all their lives to achieve what you've been given by design you are half human yet you have chosen a vulcan way of life in effect, you have abandoned what I have sought all my life. And that's the cool part about Data is like, because Vulcans are aspirational, and, and, and I think, in the way the Star Trek depicts them. And like, this is kind of what I wanted to get to with the conversation again between Picard and Data in stellar cartography. Yeah. Is this idea that like, boy, if either one of them were Vulcans, this wouldn't be a problem. Hmm, yeah. Right? Not that they're suppressing or ignoring the emotions, but they're so integrated and, and controlled that 
it doesn't it's not disruptive mm-hmm. right and data lost that advantage that he had mm-hmm. by because of this emotion shift i mean not everyone would call it an advantage but yes well yeah i, I would you go into that more because well yeah. i think i do think of it as an advantage well, there, there's a, also a, I think when Data and Picard are talking in stellar cartography, Data talks about, he's like, I can't control these emotions, mm-hmm. I think is the line. And, like, I think trying to control your emotions is actually a very bad idea. Like, people want to. We, again, we don't, we don't want to feel unpleasant, unpleasant sensations and feelings. Like, I don't think anyone wants to feel heartbreak or grief or pain or loss or fear, fear or, you know, like, or anxiety, or, yeah, all, all these feelings that are, we, we have called difficult. Mm-hmm. People would rather not feel them, and they want to be able to control, oh, this is coming on, let me just squash it, you know? I, but that that's not how emotions work. Like, I, I don't think you can actually control your emotions, but what you can do is control your response to them. Right. I think a lot of times people get, like, really overwhelmed by their emotions, and they're just caught in it like like it's a hurricane. It's just, it's completely all-consuming and surrounding them, and the emotion is driving you more so than your thoughtful, rational, logical part of yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we can strive for being able to identify the emotion but having a little bit of distance from it so it's not just surrounding you. You know, it's like, I feel, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a long journey, but to be able to say, I feel really angry right now, and I'm going to walk away from this conversation, mm-hmm. like that takes so much work and skill. And you still feel angry. You can feel rage in that moment, but that emotion is not dictating how you respond in that moment. It's like, I, I'm aware that I feel this way, and I'm going to, but I'm still in, I don't want to say the word control, but maybe that is it. Like, but I still have enough of myself where I can regulate this feeling and it's not going to overtake me that I'm going to choose my response in this moment versus just react to you based on this emotion. Does that, how does that make sense? It makes sense. Um, I guess... It feels to me like we're saying sort of the same thing, but with different emphasis and a different um, judgment on the on on, on the method. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, so I think the Vulcans. It's not that they don't have emotions; they right. just have such a cool, neutral exterior that like those emotions never show up on the surface, but they still feel them. But like that, those emotions, in in my psychological opinion, are completely disconnected from their phenomenological experience mm-hmm. you know like there's just the, like that tether has been cut so that they might still feel anger but it, it's so disconnected from who they are and right. like who they want to be so i but what i think is like you can still be connected to that emotion you can still feel the emotion but how do you do you let it control what you're about to do or do you see it and you acknowledge it and you're like i still want to behave in a certain way because of my chosen values so by you know what 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 is often remarked about the vulcans and data for that matter before his emotionship i guess is you know the scene where he discovers spot is still alive and is very happy he would not be capable of that of touching that feeling either Mm -hmm. because unless he were also able to touch the quote-unquote negative feelings yeah so yeah i i'm mostly convinced i guess it's just whether or not 
Well, you, you said not everyone would call what Data had prior to the emotion ship an, an advantage. advantage. Yeah. Yeah. Besides the pleasure that one gets from their emotions, um, which is worth the pain that comes with some other emotions, what is the advantage? Of, of feeling grief and sadness and pain and loss. Yeah, having that tether intact. Hmm. I think it's just a, a fully immersed experience of being alive. Like, if you try to repress or shut down or control certain feelings, mm-hmm. like, imagine, so we're both musicians, so I'm going to use the piano as a metaphor right now. Imagine that our emotional spectrum is the piano, and we want to be able to play every single key on that piano. We don't, you know, but for some reason, if we play certain keys, those are unpleasant for us or they're painful to us, and we decide we don't actually want to play those keys. Our emotional system has a broad spectrum repression. Like, it's not good enough to say, I'm only, I'm not going to feel this very specific thing. If you try to shut down any part of your emotional spectrum, you shut down a huge amount of it. And so it's not like you can say, I'm only, I'm only going to play this half of the piano and not this half of the piano. If you try to just shut off the one side of the piano, you're going to lose access to all of it. Mm. It's kind of like a... It's tapestry. It's a tapestry, or it's, it's, it's like um, a filter, you know, or um, when you're EQing audio, you know, <laughs> instead, of, instead of having just a narrow band of, of like, I'm just going to try to isolate this frequency, it's broad. Mm. Like, if you, like, and, and that's just the way it works. There's no way to single out, I'm not going to feel this, but I want to feel everything else. And to your point, what is the advantage of feeling pain and loss and sorrow and grief. I think that it's a very philosophical question that I think is, it's just what it means to be alive. Like if you don't feel those things, you're not living a full life. An emotion, honestly, if you don't repress it lasts 90 seconds, it rises and then it falls. And next time you're feeling a really strong emotion, let yourself feel it and just kind of time how long it takes for you to start to feel better and come out of it. It's going to be about 90 seconds. But if you try to repress it, then it stays stuck and it never finishes its cycle. about things that we're not huge fans of in this movie. Yeah. And that's fair. Like I said, it's a pretty... It's not a great movie, and in terms of just where it fits in the Trek legacy is very okay at best. Um, But I do think the concepts behind it are kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. And the idea of what it means... To have generations of Star Trek, to have generations of captains and generations of ways of ways of being, right within within this universe and 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 what it means to pass something on, whether it's having kids, uh, taking a different letter 
on the end of the registry of your starship um, or uh, trying to live forever in some, in some other way. I, I think I'm still fascinated by that concept and it keeps bringing me back to this movie. Yeah, it, it's a it's a concept that is so tied into the way we experience reality, which is linear time and mortal. Like we are not around forever. No one is. And, and it, the different ways we try to reconcile our brief moment here with the life of the universe. Like everyone has different ways of doing it. Mm. And I remember someone was telling me about the monarch butterflies, you know, how they do the migration from Mexico um, up the coast of California. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize this, but not all those butterflies make the whole journey. It's actually like a relay race. Like some of them fly partway, have babies, those butterflies keep going. So it's multiple. Generational. It's generational. It's multiple generations making that migration. It's not the, the same butterflies that start in Mexico do not end up in the final destination. Mm. But it's a relay race. It's like, I'm going to go this far and then pass it on to you and I need you to keep going. And in one way, that's what family does. You know, it's like, hey, like we've been going, we have this wonderful lineage and ancestry that we're hopefully proud of. And we you know, like we were talking about in implanted memories and memorials a couple weeks ago, like the memory, memory we have of people in our lives keeps them alive for us and in this world and in, in poetic ways that I think is comforting. Um, but it also doesn't have to be um, biological children. It can be the knowledge that you acquire and that you share for someone else to, you know, continue that work. It can be in the way that you've changed the world. Like in some way, like, we don't live in the nexus where all time is accessible. We just have this one moment and how do we connect this moment to something bigger than ourselves and say, I am part of the fabric of the universe going forward in one way or another. And mm -hmm. I'm connected to everything that's come before me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very well said that the, the scene transition, you know, it's very clever when they go from the uh, 23rd, 23rd century with Kirk's, initial death to uh the holodeck in the 24th century but it's in the 18th century yeah right? that's what they're playing and they're on the the old wooden enterprise right um it's very clever because it's going this way yeah <laughs> um but it's also um they're in the holodeck it's the only holodeck scene mm -hmm. in the whole movie and we have this nexus thing right which is the big sci-fi conceit of the movie and it's both it's it, it kind of a holodeck in a way but more eternal i guess yeah <laughs> um and somehow more fulfilling but the fact that they you know the the crew made this choice they're like we're on a starship we're gonna go back to this thing that gave us our name and that you know they make mention in the scene about you know, Picard's sort of being really nostalgic about this time that he never lived in. Just imagine what it was like. No engines, no computers, just the wind and the sea, and the stars to guide you. Bad food, brutal discipline. No women. <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's there's the good and the bad yeah. <laughs> coming from from that place. But the point is, they the twenty fourth century technology gives them this little portal into um, the generational legacy. This The Nexus gives an even broader one, but if we bring it back to, to us, we have that 
means, maybe a little bit more limited and a little bit more small, but we have the means of reflecting on our past and reflecting on our future mm -hmm. and where, where and how we want to pass that torch and to whom and why. Yeah. And I take some comfort and wisdom from Kirk, actually, just in the way that he is saying, I want to make a difference. Like, do you make a difference? And if I did, I'm going to be satisfied. All right, well said. Elizabeth, thank you, thank you. for being in person with me. I'm so glad to do this. This is fun. I wish you could do this every week. But uh, regardless, we are going to have a regular episode next week, and we're going to be talking... Don't get too excited. We're going to be talking about Nazis. <laughs> but uh, in a fun way, I promise. Yeah, so. just like, what does it mean that we keep returning to that period of time? And just like, what are, what are we trying to understand by continuing to talk about Nazis? Yeah, it's, it's, I promise it's going to be fun. <laughs> Thank you, as always, for your insight. And we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye.